0: Open Source relies on listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. Fifteen years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio And thank you. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. In Paris, London, Washington, the great seats of empire historically, Established power seems to hang by a thread. Theresa May puts an end date on her fumbling prime ministership in Brexit time. Emmanuel Macron holds on as president of France, but no longer as the designated savior of capital banking. President Trump stands all but indicted for sins public and private. Each national crisis has its distinctive style and history, and still, the shudder in Western democracy is collective. Most fascinating perhaps is that this revolt of late 2018 still has no name, no leader, no movement goals. Short of a nervous breakdown, it feels like a popular tantrum that refuses to stop, a sense that the system we've known that we stand for is off track. Here's how it sounded in The Mother of Parliaments this week.
1: I will
2: tell members on the other side, when we have had a meaningful vote, we had it in the referendum on 2016,
3: and, and, if, he, and if he wants a meaningful date, I will give him one, 29th of March
2: 2019, when we leave the European Union. Jeremy Corbyn, this house, this house agreed a programme
4: motion. The Prime Minister and her government have already been found to be in contempt of Parliament. Her behavior today is just contemptuous of this Parliament and of this country.
0: Our game this hour is to smoke out causes and consequences of a mysteriously networked rebellion. How much of it is about money, private jets overflying public austerity, or the clear new line between haves and have-nots, people with a future and those without? Or is it a culture clash between global thinking and precinct thinking? How much is just the weather? There's a climate crisis closing in, but your taxes on my gasoline are already too high. How much is the unspeakable fear that the future might be Chinese? We begin with the historian Julian Borg, who teaches at Boston College and writes a lot about the French street riots and popular revolt of 1968. Do you suppose, Julian Borg, that the French in the yellow vest just felt compelled to mark
2: the 50th anniversary somehow? Well, Chris, one thing that's certain is that we're cursed to be living in interesting times. I mean, there's, there's a big mess. And the first thing we need to do is take a, a breath and a step back and say there is a very large realignment that's underway. Hmm. This is an extended moment of transition and uncertainty. And just to pick up what you said, you know, shuddering democracies and economic crisis and social unrest, we have to think these things together. So, I mean, the question is, where are we? And there's clearly some Hmm. tectonic shifts underway right now. So let's just take a step back and consider we're the three main shock events of the early 21st century. We've got 9-11, we've got the economic crash of of 2008, and then we have this Brexit and Trump in 2016 up to the Yellow Vest protests that are going on in France right now. Mm -hmm. So the consequences of these three shock events, these earthquake events, are profound insecurity. You know, literally with terrorism, but also revealing the highlight, highlighting the splits between the have and have nots and the way that these this is brought to the surface, you know, resentments and angers that are really showing the failure of elites. And by elites, we Mm. we mean journalists, we mean professors like myself, we mean political elites. And it's also revealing longer processes, cracks that have been developing, and the fact that globalization, as we all know, has not been working for a lot of people since the '70s. And in other ways, mm. Europe, the project of European unif- unification since World War II has not been working for some people in some ways. So, there's a lost confidence
0: in institutions, and a kind of <clears throat> could seem like an exhaustion of democracy. Lost confidence in democracy. China doesn't have these problems. What's what's so great about? Arguing about everything.
2: Well, well, one of the challenges. I mean, you know, when we we look back to the 19th century, Europeans would look to the Ottoman Empire and say that's the sick man of Europe. But right now, it's Europe that seems pretty diseased. And so, the the networked virus that you were talking about has to do with nationalist populism and anti elitism, Islamophobia the desire for social welfare benefits, but a real breaking of the social contract. So democracy is in crisis insofar as people are not willing to put in and contribute to the process of developing together the common good. What, what about a line that I don't read in our
0: papers, but um, there's a setback here to the neoliberal orthodoxy since the fall of the Soviet Union about the marketization of the world, no alternative in sight, and the world could be heard to be shouting back, no, no, it's not working for us. What do you think?
2: Well, that's right. I mean, there's a type of market utopianism. There was a view that markets and the equation of free markets and free principles would uh, free the world. And so we've seen how that's come undone, that this has not been working for many people uh, around the world.
0: Is there, I mean, there was an interesting article in the Financial Times, also in Rolling Stone by uh, Matt Taibbi, arguing that... Um, this is the importance of Macron, Macron's embarrassment, that the sort of leading light, the JFK of neoliberal economics, the finance guy for the world, uh, has blown it after fashion. That's.
2: Well, that's right. He's come along in a very heavy-handed manner. And so it's true that France is, has, has a great amount of stagnation. They've got high employment and low growth. And so there's a way that France has resisted neoliberalism in many ways as a culture. There's been consensus on the left and right that French should, uh, you know, live to work rather than work to live. I mean, there's a way right. that, that, you know, longer vacations and a quality of life. And so there's a resistance that life should be reduced to market relationships. And so this has had broad consensus for many decades. And in many ways, we we should be a little surprised that it's taken so long for crisis in France to rear its head. So what we've seen over the past four weeks with the Yellow Jacket movements is a broad array of dissent with this heavy-handed approach of Macron to come along and institute probably some needed reforms, but in a way that is not reaching out and building consensus.
0: Julian, what is the resonance with 1968
2: yeah. Well, here we have a long tradition in France going all the way back to the French Revolution, the idea that the state should be accountable to the people. Back to Louis Fourteenth, who would say the state is me. But in France, there's this idea that the state is us. The state is the people. Mm-hmm. So we've got a long tradition through the 19th century and explosively 50 years ago of the revolts, first with students and then workers, and it became a political crisis. You know, it was the largest general strike in 20th century Europe, what happened in France in May and June mm-hmm. 1968. And since then, we had strikes in 1995. There were some riots in the early 2000s. So in some ways, we shouldn't be surprised that France is is bringing to the fore the pressure points of the tensions between a state that's not delivering or not accountable to the needs of the people. And they sort of like barricades once in a while. Well, that's right. It's a tradition. It's a tradition. And, you know, I was thinking about the connections between what's happening now and in, in 1968. In 1968, the protests were centered first in the student district on the left bank. Now they're centered on the Champs-Élysées on the right bank. And that's when the, Gaullist, uh, or the Gaullists had their counter protests in 1968. In 1968, there were uh, 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 mobilizations and and marches during the week, but never on the weekend. What's happening in France now? It's only on the weekends that they're having the protests.
0: What is the resonance with a hundred years ago? We've just been observing with always with strange mixed feelings the the armistice and what it didn't resolve yeah. um, in World War One. That was a that was a failure of globalization World War One too, and it led to even worse. Make what what link you want to make between uh, tw- uh,
2: 1918 and 2018. Well, that's right. I mean, it's helpful for me as a historian to think about analogies, the similarities and differences. I mean, just to start with the populism we see from Brazil to Trump to Hungary today, there's connections and analogies we can make with what happened in the 1930s but, as you suggest, even going back before to World War one you know there 's a, there's a new paradigm emerging we 're starting to talk again about great power conflict. so Europe as a whole is being sidelined as the United States and Russia and China are posturing and what concerns me and nobody 's uh, talking about this, I think, is that when we go back to the pre World War I era, great power competition. And empire and economics mm. ultimately led to conflict and war. And so, if there's a connection that concerns me between that time and this, is that many populations before World War I were blissfully going along, not aware of the danger of war. They hadn't fought a real war for a long time, and it was the last thing they expected and it was the worst thing they got. That's completely fascinating, and I haven't heard that. What,
0: how did that language, the vocabulary of great powers, slip back in, and who's Who's advancing it, what, and what are we? What are we leaving out beyond the big one, the climate crisis?
2: Well, again, to play with analogies, it stood out to me when when Mattis and the Department of Defense talked about terrorism is no longer the major national security threat. Threat we need to start thinking about competition with China and and Russia. So there's concern of hotspots, say Crimea or the China Sea, and so uh, we should be vigilant uh, because. It's been surprising to me that in, in, under the Trump administration, there has not been any sort of loud unilateral military action. And many administrations have done that quite early uh, in, while they've been in terms.
0: I missed it coming from Mattis. I thought he, you were going to have him say that you know, the problem, the, the, the dire threat is not terrorism, it's it's climate change.
2: But you say no, it's... Uh, Great powers. Well, I'm sure the De- Department of Defense is, is thinking about climate change a lot. That's for sure. But but it was very clear that you know, thinking about competitions with other large economic powers and rival political systems is is back on the agenda.
0: And what connection does that make with this this just unease, this insecurity? It's, it's both very personal and maybe
2: very global too.
0: In in uh, in Paris, in yeah. London.
2: Well, in Europe, we're seeing the unraveling of an economic and political order that has been in place since the end of World War II, first in Western Europe, and then after, as you said, the end of the Cold War, in all of Europe, the idea that beyond the nation state, there is a regional identity. I mean, there's several generations of young Europeans have grown up not identifying as French or Belgium or Italian, but as young Europeans. And so there's a tension between this type of cosmopolitanism, which just means the ability to live with differences, and on the other hand, people who feel very much left behind. This is this may be the whole story—a uh, kind of failure of,
0: well, uh, uh, a transition to a European mentality in a lot of young people, and yet, a, a I don't know what do you say, uh, slipping back to no, I'm
2: I'm French. Let's stop. It, it, enough is enough about we're all in this thing together. In moments of uncertainty and dislocation, it's not surprising that people cling to the familiar. And so when we see the the rise of rabid nationalisms and types of authoritarian populism, it's an attempt to provide simplistic solutions to what are, in fact, very complex problems. Juden Borg is our first guest. We're, before the end of the hour,
0: we're going to have a name for whatever this virus or affliction or liberation or something is all about. Coming up... Our guest, Vanessa B., went home to her father and her grandparents in rural France to put a family face on those yellow vests. She'll be with us on Open Source. Vanessa B. is a consumer protection lawyer in Washington, six years out of school, but it's more interesting than that. She is Cameroonian on her mother's side, rural French on her father's. She's just back from the countryside in France, three hours southwest of Paris. Grandpa was a blacksmith and a farmer once. He's almost 90 now, and he's not well. So a family visit, Vanessa, became a sampling of what French people are up to or going through. Short form, you write, France is restless. In some towns, it's burning. And very little of the commentary we're reading, you say, Gets it. We met you online in a young magazine. We love current affairs. Sum up your trip for us, Vanessa. Hi,
3: Welcome. I'm Welcome. so excited to be here. <laughs> um, Yes, yeah, so it was sort of a whirlwind trip. I went for four days and uh, I had caught wind that there were some protests in France from the United States, but I hadn't paid too much attention only because, you know, the French strike every other day. So <laughs> I thought maybe this is nothing special. But when I got to France, it really was uh, the story on the forefront of any every newspaper every day. Um, I also arrived a couple of days before um, the big um, march, the big protest that was scheduled for December 8th. Uh, and there was a lot of anxiety around what to expect. Um, there had been some violence the previous Saturday. There had been some broken windows. And so there was a lot of of unrest uh, when I arrived.
0: So tell us what American political commentators want to make of it. You say they're all right, left, and center, missing the point or getting the tone wrong.
3: Yes, a little bit. Uh, You know, I I won't take too seriously the conspiracy theorists who are blaming all this on Russia, which is very interesting. If you've been paying paying any attention to France, the French do not need the Russians to be angry at their own government. Hmm. This is something they do daily, right? Um, But on on the side of the liberals, I'm seeing some derision of the protest as uh, a sort of uh, backlash against progressive policies. Um, How can these people be progressive when um, they're taking a position against the fuel tax? Is France not serious? Are French people not serious about global warming? Uh, Are people just being selfish and not wanting to do their part? And I think Hmm. That's very misleading. I mean, first of all, there is much less of a a climate change denial culture in France than there is here. Um, And and second, you know, the real question isn't, it's not that people don't want to pitch in. In fact, uh, you know, the French expect a lot from the state and there's an understanding that to get a lot, you must give a lot. And so P- French people are taxed more and there's an expectation that, you know, that there's a return on that. But with the degree of inequality that that we're seeing in the Western world and certainly in France, there's a question of our our working class family and lower middle class families and poor people, really the ones who should be shouldering uh, the burden of of this fuel tax, this very regressive tax. Um, so it's it's you know painting the protesters as completely ignorant, I think, is unfair. Then on the right, there has been this urge to paint this as a completely anti-government protest, anti-taxes, sort of what you might see from the Tea Party here. Uh, and I I understand the urge to want to co-opt the movement for our, you know, for their own political means, but. Again, I, I don't think that's what's going on at all. Like I said, the French have very high expectations from their government and what they're complaining is it's is largely that the government isn't uh meeting its promises. It's not doing enough for people. They they are asking for more from the government.
0: Vanessa, please introduce your father and what his take is. <laughs>
3: my father uh so my father is a general Xer. he was born in 1961 he uh graduated from high school barely uh and has worked at a factory that that makes um parts for diesel cars that go into uh, renault cars and he has done that since his early 20s so for almost 40 years um And he is the sole breadwinner in in our family. My stepmom had a job for eight years under a contrat à durée limitée, which are these limited contracts, um, uh, so for temporary jobs. And when she lost that, she wasn't able to find more employment, in part because there is, you know, France has a serious discrimination problem, and that includes... um, you know, discrimination on the basis of age. And she's a woman of color. So that's mm. that's a double whammy. And so she's not been able to find work. So my dad is the sole breadwinner. Despite that, you know, he's been able to sort of live this middle class lifestyle and they have a little home and, and daughters in college, again, because he has one of these sort of unicorn jobs where you could have a high school degree and still be able to support a family of four, On that salary, and
0: who's he he rooting for in December 2018?
3: Oh dear! So he voted for Macron. He was, you know, my father is a a centrist. He doesn't like what he calls extremism, so he didn't want too much left, and he didn't certainly didn't want too much right. Um, But he has, you know, every time I've come home since 2017, he's expressed disappointment with Macron. He you know, like very reflective of what you've heard from the Gilets Jaunes, uh, thinks that Macron is aloof, not in touch with the people, um, and and more interested in helping out the rich than, you know, sort of, mm-hmm. of people in, in my father's class. I so stand he's quite by. disappointed.
0: I want to introduce you to Arthur Goldhammer. He's the go-to translator of French culture for English and American readers. 100-plus books so far, from de Tocqueville to the Marquis de Sade to Thomas Piketty. You are our Secretary of State for Europe, Arthur Goldhammer. Does Vanessa get it right in your view? What do you think is going on? What's the point of all this? Uh,
1: Well, I think Vanessa gets a lot right. Uh, I would view this crisis as uh, a tale of two languages, as it were. Hmm. Macron speaks one language. He comes from a world of uh, highly trained civil servants who have been uh, trained in the language of economics, uh, who mingle with their counterparts from other European countries, who analyze the problems of the economy uh, in the uh, language they learned at school. They don't speak the language of the common people at all. The gilets jaunes uh, exemplify what in French is called parler cash. They take the English word cash and they use that for speaking bluntly or frankly. Hmm. Uh, And that's what they're longing to hear from their political leaders. They don't hear it from Macron except when he tries to uh, uh, emulate a person talking on the street and he doesn't do it very well. He tends to put his foot in his mouth. To tell uh, unemployed people that all they need to do to find a job is to cross the street. Uh, If they want to wear a nice suit like his, all they have to do is uh, find work. Uh, And uh, similar gaps like that, which have uh, mounted up. Now, one uh, point on which I differ slightly with Vanessa is uh, on the issue of inequality. Uh, As Thomas Piketty has shown uh, in his book, France is far less uh, unequal than uh, most other countries, and particularly uh, compared to the United States. Income inequality in France has been tamped down by redistributive policies uh, since the end of World War II. And uh, those have continued even under Macron, champion of neoliberalism, though he may be in the eyes of the Financial Times. Uh, His overall tax package, if you take everything together and look not Mm. just at the fuel tax hike, is redistributive. It takes from the top 20% and gives to the middle 50%. Now, it's true that the people at the bottom, the bottom 20% of the income distribution, they do pay a little bit more, uh, about 0.5%, which if you're making the minimum wage in France would be about uh, uh, €6 a week. Uh, Not a, a, a terrible burden to pay, but for people living on the edge, that is significant. What hurt him is that one of his first moves was to abolish the wealth tax. Uh, That was a tone-deaf move for any politician to make, Uh, and it gave a significant boost to the very top one percentile, the one versus the 99% that we heard so much about. President of the rich, yeah. uh, uh, And that earned him the epithet, president of the rich, which is something he has not been able to shake and probably never will be
0: able to shake. Vanessa, it's your turn to critique Arthur Goldhammer. How's he, how's he doing?
3: Uh, no, it, it, you know, you're correct that there is much less inequality in France. And sometimes I tell my father, you know, some of the things that Americans have to go through and he can't believe it, you know. Um, like what? I, I, oh, I, I mean, health insurance, you know, being a big one. <laughs> mm. Just to sort of, we just get... We can't expect as much here. Um, but something that I, I want to emphasize is that, um, you know, I, I mentioned previously these temporary um, job contracts, and and those are a big deal to my generation. Uh, it's, it's like trying to build a life while working under these two to four year contracts. is like building a foundation on sand, you know, like millennials can't seriously invest in putting roots down if they don't know whether two years from now they will be unemployed again indefinitely Mm. you know the french have at least uh the baby boomers and a little bit generation x not to make this all about generations but there's this collective memory of like the trente glorieuses right the 30 years yeah yeah, it's a prosperity from 1945 to 75 Well, the oldest millennials were born in the early 80s. Hmm. We never saw that. And so at some point, it's sort of like, well, when is it our turn? You know, like this is something that French millennials have in common with Americans, this idea that like things were so much better for our parents and it's unfair that we're not given the same opportunities.
0: Vanessa B, what should it tell us that the, the first yellow vest was a woman of color. Uh, as I'm told, and Arthur Arthur has tracked the story to the root. But, but but your opinion as a woman of color yourself in France, what does that tell you?
3: I'm pleasantly surprised. I did not know that. You know, I I, I think it's I think it's great. I think it's meaningful. Um, France has. You know, it has a long history of protesting and of demonstrations, but it hasn't had a real civil rights movement where it has, you know, where the country has been forced to really confront how it treats Hmm. uh, minorities, particularly immigrants from the former colonies, um, Arabs, uh, and now, you know, an increasingly uh, Asian population also. Um, And And all these struggles that the Gilets Jaunes are describing in terms of, of, um, you know, at the end of the month, finding it difficult to make ends meet. I mean, I have personally seen how difficult it is to be a person of color in France. And it's one of the reasons why I choose to live in the the United States, even though it's far from being a racial utopia. Um, But, Uh, you know, there's just this sense that the government is not serious about... Uh, attacking discrimination and making sure that there are equal opportunities for people of color. I don't think that has made it into the, the Gilets jaunes protest, but it is certainly, I think, in the background of all this. Should a, be.
0: Tell us all again how this got started. Yeah, well, if I could jump
1: in here for a moment, uh, it, it's not I who tracked this down, but Le Monde uh, uh, tracked uh, the origins of the Gilets jaunes movement down to patient number one, as it were. Uh, It's a woman named uh, Priscilla Ludowski who lives in the provinces, who uh, is uh, a woman of color who has an online cosmetics business and who was unhappy about uh, the high gas price she was paying. Uh, She posted something on Facebook, which went viral and soon had collected 986,000 signatures. Now, uh, what's interesting about this is that there was a lot of concern among uh, France watchers that uh, this was a movement that was going to be co-opted by Marine Le Pen, who, of course, was um, Macron's opponent in the second round of the presidential election. Uh, And at first, it seemed that uh, the gilets jaunes were really resisting overtures from all political parties, including Marine Le Pen. And you heard much less anti-immigrant rhetoric than you normally hear from uh, many protesters in France, uh, including uh, unionized protesters. Uh, However, in recent weeks, uh, the uh, effort by the far right to co-opt the movement, particularly through social media, has increased. And a poll released just today in France shows that uh, in the uh, 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 vote uh, for for the European Parliament that will come in May, currently Marine Le Pen is leading by a a significant margin. She has 24 percent to Macron's 18. And her 24 percent is joined by... uh, uh, a party called Debout La France, which is also a far-right nationalist party, uh, with 8 percent. So the two together have 32 percent, which is back to the level of the old mainstream parties, hmm. uh, a strength which has not been seen in France for uh, 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 nearly a decade now.
2: Julian Borg, your turn. Yeah, to, to Vanessa, who was just there, um, when France has this tradition of protest that you've seen a great deal, What felt different about this experience? Um, You know, did did, did it seem uh, hotter or that it had legs that it was going to go somewhere compared to other protests that you've seen in the past?
3: You know, it's difficult because I'm seeing all these comparisons to May 1968. um, And sure, the numbers are there, but I'm not necessarily anticipating, I just don't view it as a protest that can go very far it feels to me like at some point it will peter out because it doesn't have a political foundation they started out saying that they that this should be a political and and indeed they tried they have they tried with some success to resist advances from uh, the unions the syndicates the politicians um but you know rallying around the fuel tax i think is sort of of insufficient, and I wonder if um, the half-baked concessions that Macron has offered will be enough to dissipate the movement. So in short, uh, I guess I just don't find it particularly – it's not that striking to me other than the numbers.
1: I'm old enough to have been there in 1968, and uh, to me this feels quite different in many ways, particularly the uh, organizing tactic of uh, having a a uniform, a ready-made uniform in the form of this yellow vest, that uh, uh, all French drivers are required to carry. It's a vest that signifies emergency. So putting it Mm. on says uh, there is an emergency for us living here at the base. Uh, It's decentralized. uh, And people who have not known each other previously come together at traffic circles and discover one another's uh, plight and politics. Now, in 68, you had a lot of groups that had been organized for a very long time around issues such as the Algerian War, Uh, And so when they went out in the streets, they already had tactics worked out and so on. The Yellow Vest movement is improvising as it it goes along. Uh, in that respect, it's very different didn't, from
0: didn't you tell me that there are 35,000 roundabouts in France I, I and just, it's a perfect place to start a movement?
1: I just learned this, uh, that uh, France has half of the world's traffic circles <laughs> and the way they are set up makes them uh, a useful choke points. If you want to choke off traffic into a city, all you have to do is take control of the two or three traffic circles.
2: Julian Borg, a word before the break. I would just uh, disagree a little bit about that. There's many differences between now and 1968. But, you know, those happenings were called the events, les événements, and they were surprising and not predicted. And in spite of earlier activism, they were also very decentralized throughout the country and they went through different waves of spontaneity and unions and political parties also tried to catch up and were behind the wave that was rather populist in its orientation. Yes, I I agree with that. It's fascinating that the rough-and-tumble... Seems more reckless
0: in France than in the U.K. or the U.S., for that matter. Protesters break windows and throw things. And French cops hit hard, too. Coming up, how the best of old media missed this story of 2018. This is Open Source. Alan Rusbridger, late of the Guardian newspapers, is arguably the great news editor of the 21st century. In print and online, he published Edward Snowden's NSA surveillance diaries. He went after fossil fuels on behalf of the climate in a brilliant multimedia campaign. He kept the online paper free and wide open to commenters. And still, as he writes in a memoir called Breaking News, Alan Rusbridger and his Guardian were overtaken by both digital and social transformation. As he put it to us this week, a world of verticals has gone horizontal.
4: It's a flowering of voices that has never been possible in history before. For the hundreds, thousands of years, ordinary people have not been able to express their opinions in a mass way and have had to rely on information from people who had access to distribution. That has been swept away in the last 10 years, really, 12 years. Uh, And we now have 4 billion people who can talk to each other and say things are not working for them. Say, "I, I don't want to live this kind of life. I don't want this kind of political system. I don't want this kind of economic system. And that's an incredibly powerful force. It can be unbelievably destructive. It can be out of control. But I think you have to temper any view you have that this is terrible, this is the mob, this is hate-filled stupidity, which some people do, and some of it is, with the fact that that actually we have to listen to these people, that that they may be telling us something about our politics and our economics that deserves to be heard.
0: Speak to the people in France. They're in a rage about a consumer gasoline tax as the way to... Save the climate. What other ways might there be? We, the elite, have done a poor job of informing
4: people about the hard choices that society is going to have to make in order to survive, bluntly. And we've done politics no service. And we have made the lives of politicians who are going to have to take tough and, you might say, brave decisions much harder. But I think politics has to listen to them and start reflecting their anger and doing something about it. So that's why I I can't be too gloomy about all this, because I think it's in some ways this is a healthier national conversation than was happening when these people weren't hurt at all. And it's going to be very painful and it could even be violent. It's not going to be solved overnight.
0: What would we call this period of awakening, anger, rage?
4: The historian Niall Ferguson has written a book called The Tower and the Square. So you could say this is the age of the square. This is the age when the people in the square are seizing back control of the narrative and the conversation. Now, it doesn't feel like control is a good word to use at the moment because everything seems out of control and mainstream politics seems out of control. But nevertheless, I think we're moving into an age of the square in which we will have to have different ways of listening to each other and of of reaching collective decisions and that may be a hundred year project it, it may be extremely uncomfortable thing to live through but nevertheless it seems to me that the technologies that we have today are going to make that inevitable hmm. it's the age of horizontalism it's the age of the horizontal conversation and you know we could do a different conversation about hate filled and how disgraceful Facebook is but nevertheless two billion people are there on Facebook and they talk to each other and their conversation is often different from the conversations that used to take place 10 years ago. So instead of decrying that form of communication we might actually try and learn something from it and say well actually that is why two billion people are there. They're they're finding a more
0: satisfying way of talking to each other. More satisfying than reading The Guardian? That's impossible. Julian Borg. The Tower in the Square. Neil Ferguson might be my least favorite
2: commentator, historian, but I think that's interesting. Well, I'll pick up on the notion of the horizontal as part of the public square. I mean, certainly it relates to new media, but from my perspective, that also goes back to 1960 and the 1960s. You know, the way that new social movements emerging at that time around gender or racial equality or sexuality were... Uh, opposed to hierarchy because it was older hierarchies Mm. that were uh, involved in types of uh, uh, repression. So a a direct democratic spirit from that time through different social movements of the 1980s and 1990s, alter globalization all the way to Occupy, there's types of an embrace of the horizontal and with that a critique of representation. And what I mean by representation is that there's always a gap between the people and their representatives. So the direct democratic spirit that what we're seeing in France right now that there's a direct confrontation between these leaderless voices of the people and the representatives of the state. There's certainly limits to that, but it's also a moment of effervescence and kind of revealing the tensions that are always hovering there.
0: Art Goldhammer, I'm thinking also this electric connection in the square is, is, resonates with your thing about two languages here. How these crowds get it instinctively in many different places... Is, is fascinating. Well, I think crowds
1: get some things uh, 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 intuitively, but they miss other things. I don't want to be the jaded old man here, but I, I'm afraid I am uh, going to play that role. <laughs> Give it a shot. I'm also the Tocquevillian who thinks that uh, you can't have uh, a, a stable democracy without some kind of hierarchy, and what you need is intermediary bodies. This uh, crowd at the bottom is an atomized crowd. It has no organization. It's completely amorphous. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who uh, was uh, uh, the guru for for my generation, uh, wrote a book called The Critique of Dialectical Reason, in which he talks about the marvelous moment in which what he calls the serio-practical inert. That's Mm. uh, the crowd as lumps of potatoes, uh, people who are just sitting around going to work uh, who uh, do not recognize one another as a political force, suddenly form what he calls a group infusion. And we thought mm-hmm. that was wonderful in 1968. That's what we were doing. We were forming group infusion. But it turns out that a group infusion needs some organization if it wants to go anywhere. That's uh, what the Occupy retrospective
0: uh, thinking is. They uh, didn't get into politics.
1: So you had the Occupy movement in France, you had the Nuit Debout movement, and they've uh, evaporated into thin air. So if you want to have some kind of permanence, you have to start to organize. You have to think about how things are going to be managed. And you can't simply say the market is evil. Uh, Back when there was an alternative to the market in the form of uh, socialism, uh, a socialist world that was uh, the alternative to the capitalist world, uh, one could think in such terms. But now we have... Western capitalism, and we have a a different form of state capitalism in Asia. So you're going to have markets of one kind or another. You're going to have managers. You're going to have hierarchy. You're going to have industrialism. Uh, You have to decide how you want to organize those. Now, uh, I— Is this going to decide how they're organized? Is this movement going to decide? Yeah. side? No, certainly not, uh, because uh, they don't possess the language in which to begin to speak about it. I think the function that this movement... What part of no, Arthur, don't you get? <laughs> the, the, the function that this movement can serve, uh, serve is to play the role of wake-up call for the elites. The elites have been missing uh, a good deal. They need to learn uh, some things very rapidly. If they don't, they're going to be
0: dis- displaced. But when elites are displaced, they're replaced by other elites. They're not replaced by... <laughs> Even Neil Ferguson says that. The the square eventually becomes its own tower. But Vanessa, before we uh, let your part of France go, tear and compare Mm -hmm. what you see back home in that sense with Brexit. It sounds like the yellow yellow vests are much less nationalistic, and they're also less xenophobic. They're not hung up on immigration or even um, black and brown people in their midst.
3: Oh, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, it's it's hard to say. One, I'm a little concerned by um, the representation among the yellow vests of people with rather conservative leanings. Mm-hmm. As I was leaving, there was a poll that showed that 40% of the polled yellow vests, and I think they were polled by TF1, uh, this big French channel, so it was pretty legitimate. 40% of them had voted for Le Pen, something like... Fifteen to sixteen percent had voted for Fillon, who was another conservative candidate. So, I I I wouldn't go as I, I wouldn't necessarily assume that a large number of the Yellow Vests are not actually xenophobic. Um, I was looking at the demands that made it into the hands of uh, of uh, Macron, and those demands were pretty progressive. However, they did sneak a couple of 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 points in there that I thought were, you know, a little bit borderline, like rather quite nationalistic. Um, And so I, you know, it's not, it's not the same context as, as what we're seeing in great, what we're seeing in Great Britain. But, um, but I do think this movement has some uh, conservative currents, but, Go, oh, sorry.
0: No, I, w- I want to put it to Julian Borg. Like and unlike between Brexit. Brexit, England, and y- y- jacket France.
2: Well, as I said in the beginning, this is a part of a larger pattern of people being dissatisfied and feeling disconnected and not heard. And so it was a protest vote. I mean, so that, you know, what's easy to mobilize people over is what they're against, uh, being against the gas tax mm-hmm. or being against the United Kingdom being part of the European Union. Uh, where we go from there is another story. I mean, to build on the previous two points, you know, politics involves hard, slow work, the the boring, slow boring of hard boards as Max Weber said, but also it requires some romance. So I, I would just say that you know, part of this being opposed to a, ca- a tax or wanting the wealth tax reinstated in France is all, there's a French phrase, on ne peut plus. We can't, we can't do this anymore. We can't handle this anymore. And that's the first step towards articulating what you're actually for. So mm. we need a little romance in politics to get us into the voting booth and get us to the local school board meeting and to start to imagine the type of world that we'd like to have.
0: I want to put it to all of you. Um, 50 and 100 years from now, aren't we pretty sure that this transitional time w- w- will mark a stripe in history? And in the common account by, say, 2068, I want to know what what's the chapter heading uh, for 2018? What happened in 2018? Whether it's a wake-up call or a revolution or the end of everything, are, are, you go first. And Vanessa, Uh, I want to hear your version, too. Well. uh, And including Brexit and, you know, MAGA. I'm more of a historian than
1: a prognosticator. You guys always say that. If I have to take a shot at it, I think that the uh, inevitable transition is going to be uh, a world dominated by China rather than the West. And perhaps it's fitting that... uh, Europe that led the rise of the West should also lead the decline. Ooh. Europe uh, definitely seems to be in in decline. I think the European Union is under great uh, strain and may break uh, at this moment. You remember that in 2017, the election of Emmanuel, Emmanuel Macron was supposed to uh, be the great hope for European renewal. Uh, he uh, was going to Uh, joined forces with Angela Merkel, who had been dragging her heels, but uh, showed some willingness to move. And Macron was going to lead this great renewal of the European Union. Well, hopes for that are now dashed. Uh, I'd like to come back to the Brexit point for a moment, if I may. Uh, Another similarity that we haven't noted between Brexit and the Yellow Vests is that uh, the Brexit vote was concentrated in the countryside, in areas outside uh, major cities. Uh, and it was carried by older people. The Yellow Vest, unlike the 1968 movement, is not at all a youth movement. The average age, according to... We have only very preliminary studies to go on at this point, but one uh, uh, study that uh, has the earmarks of reliability says that the average age of uh, Gilets Jaunes is 45-plus uh, years old. Mm. Uh, there's an overrepresentation of retirees in the movement, which was also the case in in the Brexit vote. Uh, so uh, these are people, uh, there's a book by David uh, Goodhart, which distinguishes between the nowheres uh, and the anywheres. Anywheres are cosmopolitan people like us who can imagine themselves living in any uh, reasonably cultivated city around the world. Uh, the, uh, the somewheres, uh, I, I should have said somewheres and anywheres, the somewheres are people who are rooted in the places where they grew up. They're not free to move. They don't feel at ease uh, in right. foreign
0: countries. Edmund Burke's, you know, precinct people.
1: And the Brexit vote and the gilets jaunes, I think, are both somewhere as rooted you're, and are you're,
0: you're, you're raising the uh, anxiety level here, uh, I, I, But I put it to you, Vanessa, is your France in decline?
3: <laughs> it absolutely is in decline. I think we are at wow. a heightened moment in history between both France and the United States. I think in the United States, we've looked to the far right for answers. Uh, Great Britain has looked to the far right for answers. And both under Trump and Theresa May, it has been pure chaos. So maybe this is a warning sign for the French that, you know, Marine Le Pen will not give you what you think she will give you. At the same time, Mm. the French have also, you know, in their own, uh, in 2017, have had a chance to uh, sort of rebuke le pen and they decided instead of going with the left to vote for the no-nonsense centrist going to govern as a technocrat a little bit apolitical very neoliberal and what are they and still they are dissatisfied right we're still seeing a friends under a sort of regime of authority um and so i'm hoping that 2018 can mark a turnaround for the left and that the far left Hmm. will finally get its shot at implementing these lofty ideas like a Green New Deal, you know, an approach to being more green while also creating more jobs and a future for not just my generation, but also, you know, supporting the older generations as they exit the workforce.
0: Vanessa, you're marvelous. Uh, Julian Borg, what's the... Chapter heading here yeah
2: so to your question, I mean optimistically which is a precious commodity in 2018 and hopefully I would say that this period 50 years from now will be known as the last temptation. That rabid nationalism and authoritarian populism, the attempt to solve the common problems of a small blue globe, uh, was not, he, we didn't fall into that trap. That we don't know our way out of this yet. And so the challenge is to bring together complexity and pluralism with some common understanding of shared history that mm-hmm. is beyond national boundaries, that's not flimsy cosmopolitanism of a bunch of elites, but moves, say, from a world based on free trade and inequality toward fair trade and caring for our common home.
0: That sounds like a program. I'll take it. 2018, I, I say it'll also be remembered as the as the moment when digitization and digital everything kicked in, not just tweeting, but a kind of rewiring of the whole species. Arth, Arth, you get a last word. <laughs> well, uh, I guess
1: uh, my last word is that I'm a Gramscian, uh, pessimism of, of the intellect, optimism, the will. I would like to believe with Vanessa that... Uh, a Green New Deal is the future, but then I look at the polls. The party that uh, has adopted a Green New Deal as its message, Benoît Hamon's Génération, is at 3.5% in the polls uh, compared to uh, 24% for Le Pen at the moment. Now, the, but What if a
0: Green New Deal has to be the program because there's no alternative? Uh,
1: well, we're not there yet. Perhaps uh, that will concentrate the minds when uh, when that comes, but i don 't think we 're at that moment. Uh, my crystal ball looks only uh, as far ahead as uh, two thousand and twenty two uh, when the next French presidential election comes uh, in two thousand and seventeen. There was a glass ceiling for uh, le Pen. I never believed that le Pen would win because the french uh, mm. uh, a, a good proportion of the French have uh, an innate resistance to the uh, Uh, quasi-fascist views that she represents. But uh, that resistance is breaking down with each new failure. Macron himself ran as a kind of populist outside the party system against the mainstream parties. Uh, His message uh, appealed uh, far beyond the classes that spoke his language. I spoke uh, at the beginning of A Tale of Two Languages. Uh, I interviewed people on the streets in Paris in 2017, uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for Macron. I think that's evaporated since then,
0: uh, alas. Thank you, Art Goldhammer. I ho- I hope you're at least half wrong. Thank you, Vanessa B. Thank you, Julian Borg. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Rebecca Panovka, and the artist Susan Coyne. Our pal, Zach Goldhammer, gave us some help this week, too. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath wears our Yellow Vest. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source.